uh, he pushed and the outhouse toppled away and floated down the creek. And so the boy wondered how long it would take before he got into trouble for this act. And so uh, he found out it didn't take very long. That night at dinner, his father told him that for dessert, they would be heading behind the woodshed. And so the little boy said, um, his father said someone had pushed the outhouse into the creek today. Was it you? And the little boy changed gears, realizing he'd probably been caught. And so he said, yes, it, it was me. And then he paused. And then he continued. He said, Dad, I read this week that George Washington chopped down a cherry tree. And he didn't get in trouble because in the end, he chose to tell the truth. To which his father replied, well, son, George Washington's father wasn't in the cherry tree. There is something inside of us that wants to do things our own way, often no matter what the consequences are. The Bible speaks clearly to the wickedness of our hearts. Romans chapter 3 verse 1 says, there is none righteous, no, not one. Now the Bible says that the Spirit of God, when we receive Christ, takes up residence in us, empowering us to do what we would not do left to ourselves. And in doing so, the Spirit of God produces fruit in our lives. And so one of the fruits of the Spirit is goodness, where we think, act, and talk, and represent Christ on a consistent basis. But the problem is, on this side of eternity, while the Spirit is at work in us trying to produce the fruit of the Spirit, also there is our old nature at war with inside of us. And so because those two competing truths are true, the challenge is this. Uh, to keep the lower story of our lives in line with the upper story of what God is trying to do in redemptive history can get incredibly difficult. And that's what this series, The Story, has been all about. We're just a little over a third of the way through, and we've been learning about what God is doing in the upper story of redemptive history and His relationship with His covenant people. And in learning that, the hope has been two things. One, that we would interpret the circumstances of our life against the backdrop of God's upper story, but also we would learn how we might more consistently and faithfully align the lower story of our lives with the upper story of what God has been doing in redemptive history. And so last week, uh, Pastor Tyler preached, and by the way, he did a great job. Amen? Uh, great job. He messed up the microphone. I just I do want to share that, so I've had to fix that. But, but uh, last week when Pastor Tyler preached, he uh, went to that familiar passage, and we looked at David and Goliath, and Goliath is uh, conquered by David there and setting into motion the victory over the Philistines, uh, the very people that King Saul was chosen to defeat. What we learned in that is that uh, David is a picture of Jesus fighting on our behalf against the greatest giant of enemy, the enemy of sin and death. And so we looked at that last week. And so let me help connect the dots between last week where we left off in the story and where we're going to be this week if you want to turn your Bibles, your phones, your tablets to... Uh, 2 Samuel chapter 11. 2 Samuel chapter 11. And so in between uh, where we were last week and where we'll be this morning in uh, 2 Samuel chapter 11, uh, we learned some things. Since then, David had been pursued and even hunted by Saul. Saul did not want to abdicate the throne to David, and so he pursued him and tried to kill him. And we learned that Saul was not a, not a godly man. Saul ends up dying in battle, and finally, David ascends to the throne uh, about 15 years prior that he had been promised. And so that's happened in between these uh, two events. Uh, David becomes the king of Judah in chapter 2. He unites the nation of Israel once again in chapter 5. And then uh, just after that in chapter 7, God makes a covenant with David. 
And so it's later summarized in 1 Chronicles chapter 17. So uh, here's the promise or the covenant that God made with David. And so here's what it says. It says, when your days are fulfilled to walk with your fathers, in other words, when you die, uh, I will raise up your offspring after you, one of your own sons, I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for me, and I will establish his throne forever. It will be to him uh, a father, and he shall be to me a son. I will not take my steadfast love from him as I took it from him who was before you. So referencing Saul there. But I will confirm him in my house and in my kingdom forever. And his throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words uh, and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. And so this covenant comes in the middle of a section that's praising David's high character as a king and also his high competency as the leader of the nation. Uh, David's high character, his kindness, his empathy as the king is kind of uh, highlighted in chapters 5 through 9. And then in chapter 10, it focuses once again on David, the conquering king, who's this incredibly skilled, gifted leader. But here's what I want you to see this morning, all right? So if you're listening, say amen. Chapters 5 through 10 is a running story about what a great guy David is and what a great leader David is in chapter 10. In other words, chapters 5 through 10 is exalting both David's character and his competency. It is a praise fest for those five chapters. But in chapter 11, what we see is this. That a man whose, whose praise in chapters 5 through 10 was warranted is still not exempt from letting the lower story of his life Get off track with the upper story of what God is doing in redemptive history. Despite all the accolades well deserved in chapters 5 through 10, we see a guy starting in chapter 11 whose life begins to fall apart despite all the praise rightfully attributed to him. So we're going to pick that up here in uh, chapter 11. I'm just going to start off reading verses 1 and 2. For many of you, this will be a familiar passage of Scripture. 2 Samuel Chapter 11, verse 1 says this, It happened in the spring of the year, at the time when kings go out to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they destroyed the people of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. And then it happened one evening that David arose from his bed and walked on the roof of the king's house. And from the roof, he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful to behold and so the Israelites are here they're they're out in battle and what, what I want you to notice here in chapter 11 is uh, David was was not with them David's back in Jerusalem now it's customary for the Hebrews to uh, rise at daybreak and then at the hottest time of the day they would take naps on their home and then they would go back out on the cool of the evening into these rooftops and so David is uh, doing some of the things that we see often would be familiar uh, in that culture out on the roof, but he's out at an unusual time, and when he's out there, he's just scanning about, and he's looking across, and there is a woman taking a bath on the roof, which is incredibly common in our neighborhoods, amen? Has that not happened a million times to you, right? You're out on the roof in the middle of the day and go, oh my goodness, someone's on their roof taking a bath right now, right? And so we look at that and we go, oh, what an unfortunate set of circumstances for David. He just happened to be up there and happened to be up there at this, this particular time and she just happened to be taking a bath and he just happened to you know glance over there and there she was and what was he to do and those kinds of things and so it may seem like 
all of that, but here's what I want you to see right off the bat and just how easy it is to get the lower story of your life out of line with the upper story of what God is trying to do in redemptive history. So the first thing I want you to see in this passage in 2 Samuel chapter 11 is simply this, is that our big sins always start off small. You ever heard the phrase, it's a slow fade? That's what it means. Uh, we look at a man like David and we wondered, how did this guy, this guy described in chapters 5 through 9 is incredibly kind. This guy in chapter 10 who's described as incredibly skilled and competent. How in the world did a guy like that end up like the guy here in chapter 11? And many of you know people just like that, don't you? They were godly people. You watch them faithfully serve the Lord, and then what it seemed to you is out of nowhere, they just drop off the cliff spiritually. Does anybody in the room know someone like that? You just give testimony. I used to go to church with someone. I used to have someone I was friends with. They were passionately serving the Lord, and then what seemed to me, out of nowhere, they just went off the cliff spiritually. And we often wonder, how does that even happen? Here's the thing, you don't have to wonder. We see it illustrated in the life of David. And how that happens is simply this, is sin is always progressive in nature. Before we get to the, the crux of this story and all the deceit and the sinfulness that David gets trapped in, it starts off as a very small progressive thing. And what you're thinking probably is, yeah, uh, in verses 2 and 3, he saw this woman, and it was not wrong to notice a beautiful woman, but he looked too long. He lingered in his gaze, and that's where his sinfulness actually started. But actually, that's not true. The progression that led to David's destruction actually starts off in chapter 1, or verse 1. Go back to chapter 11, verse 1, and read it again. And I want you to notice, these words are not accidental here. Here's what he says. It happened in the spring of the year, listen to this, at the time when kings, who David is one, at the times when kings go out to battle. And then David and Joab sent his servants with him and all the people of Israel and they destroyed the people of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But listen to this, but David remained at Jerusalem. So, so here's what I want you to see. This all started with David having a heart that desired some comfort. This all started with David wanting to indulge his desire on the heart level for comfort he probably rationed and said yes I, uh, this is the time when I should be going out to battle but but I've done it so many times and, and I've already made those sacrifices and, and I've already proved myself a skilled leader and so just this one time I deserve to indulge my desire for comfort so I'm going to send everyone else to do what I should be doing and indulging his comfort guess what David set himself up for life's destruction and he probably may justify that, but here's what I want you to understand. All it takes is a small, self-justified, indulgent for temptation to take root in our hearts. And that's exactly what happened in David. See, here's the thing. If David had done what he should have done and hadn't laid aside his responsibilities, guess what? No one would have been able to see anyone taking a bath on the rooftop. But David just said, just this once. I deserve it. I've sacrificed so much. And I just deserve a little peace and quiet. And so boys, you go ahead and go out. You'll be fine. We've done this a hundred times. And I'm just going to indulge my heart's desire for comfort. And guess what? That small little indulgence, that small little self-justification that I deserve what my heart wants set David on a crash course with sin. And so... 
what happens, we see this sin always is progressive. It starts off in verse 1 with David's self-indulgence. But here's what I want you to see. Little sins can cause great harm. Would you say that with me? Little sins can cause great harm. One more time. Little sins can cause great harm. One more time with Pentecostal power, all right? Little sins can cause great harm. And I'm sure David was thinking, what's it matter if I just lay aside those responsibilities? It doesn't matter. In verse 2, it started to matter in a big way. And that's exactly what David's about to find out. His sin is progressive in nature. It starts off with a little self-indulgence in verse 1. I deserve a little comfort after all that I've done for the country, for the Lord. But it never stops there, does it? Sin has an insatiable appetite. Keep reading at verse 3. So David sees Bathsheba up there in verse 2, and he notices her. She's beautiful to behold. And at that point in time, David could have just walked away. But what does verse 3 say? The progressive nature of sin in verse 3 says, So David sent and inquired about the woman. And I want you to see this. You know what the Bible says that God always makes a way of escape when it comes time of temptation? This is played out right here in verse 3 because I want you to notice something here in verse 3. What's the response to David's question of, hey, who's that lady naked on the roof? Which, by the way, if you're from Kentucky, in the Greek, the word is naked. Write that down, all right? And so what does it say? Verse 3, and someone said, is this not Bathsheba? Listen to what they say. This is not accidental. The daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. You know, you know what they were saying? Now, they were going to openly challenge David as the king because their head would have rolled. They were saying, David, you are wicked. What are you doing looking at her? What are you doing asking about her? That They were never going to be that brazen because of who David was. But what do they, how do they describe her? They just don't say, hey, she's some woman or those kind of things. What does she say? Hey, David. I get that you're the king and you feel entitled to, to all the kingdom has to offer. It's evidenced by the fact that you should be at war right now. But here's what I want you to understand. That's just not some woman, some object of your affection that you feel justified in indulging yourself in. That's someone's daughter. That's someone's wife. And at that moment in time, David could have said, whoa, you're right. right God made a way of escape right there for his temptation as he always promises to do. But that self-indulgent heart that stayed home in verse 1, and that self-indulgent heart that felt like it was appropriate to keep looking in verse 2, and that self-indulgent heart that said, I need to know who that is in verse 3, that same self-indulgent heart in verse 4 pushes through that way of escape. What does verse 4 say? Look at it. Then David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he laid with her, for she was cleansed from her impurity, and she returned to her house. And so what do we see? Sin is always progressive. I mean, we can line it out right from verse 1 into verse 2. A gaze that's too long. Verse 1, shirking your responsibilities, indulging your own selfish desires. Verse 3, I don't care whose wife that is. Verse 4, go and get her to I may be intimate with her. Sin is always progressive in nature. When we hear a marriage that is rocked, by adultery that at one time appeared to be rock solid and we're thinking how in the world did that happen here's how slowly and progressively you probably start off with frustration about some perceived or even real deficiencies in your spouse that you've grown discontent with and then all of a sudden you begin to notice someone else and those uh 
deficiencies that you're frustrated about or discontent with, they're left uncommunicated. And so you do exactly uh, the opposite of what the book of Ephesians says, uh, which says, don't let the sun go down on your wrath lest you give the devil a foothold. And so you just keep not communicating, keep not communicating. The sun keeps going down, the sun keeps going down, the sun keeps going down. And eventually it grows into full-blown discontentment. And guess what? We are contentment seekers. We're looking to be satisfied. There's no question about that. And so when we are discontent, we start looking for satisfaction. We begin to notice people that from our perspective don't have any of the deficiencies that our spouse has. And then eventually... Those become opportunities where we go out of our way to engage in conversation that, quite frankly, often is innocent. But in my experience in 20 years of ministry, almost every time those conversations drift into sharing with someone of the opposite sex about the struggles in your marriage. Now, if you're listening, say amen. Write this down. Don't be dumb. All right? Don't ever talk to someone of the opposite sex about the struggles you are having in your marriage. Proverbs says this, what man can take hot coals to his chest and not be burned? It's rhetorical because the answer is no one. And that person begins to listen. They don't have any of those deficiencies that you're aggravated, your spouse about. And it just feels like they just get you and you get each other. You're in the same place uh, in your marriage. And eventually it goes into a full-blown adulterous affair. And those on the outside are wondering, how in the world did that happen? How did that rock-solid marriage get rocked by the sin of adultery? Listen, the same way it always happens, slowly and progressively. Sin is always a progression that starts in the affection of our hearts. David's heart wanted comfort, indulgence in verse 1, so he's staying home from the war, and eventually he's off to the races. Sin always starts as a heart affection that shows up as an observable action. James chapter 1, verses 14 and 15 talks about this slow fade into sin as well. Listen to what it says. But each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. Let me give you another word for his own desire. His own heart affections. He desires it at the heart level. Guess what? That lures him away. It goes on to say, then desire, when it's conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. And so this is the illustration, obviously, of, of birth. It starts off with conception of sin in our hearts, where our heart says, you need that to be satisfied. And we begin to believe that. And because we believe that, we desire that. And because we desire that, we end up doing that. And so it's always progressive in nature. No one drifts towards holiness. D.A. Carson, the great theologian, said it this way. He said, people do not drift towards holiness. Apart from grace-driven effort, people do not gravitate towards Godliness, prayer, obedience to Scripture, faith, and delight in the Lord. We drift towards compromise and call it tolerance. We drift towards disobedience and call it freedom. We drift towards superstition and call it faith. We cherish the indiscipline of lost self-control and call that relaxation. We slouch towards prayerlessness and delude ourselves into thinking we've escaped legalism, we slide towards godlessness and convince ourselves that we have been liberated when in fact we've become enslaved to sin. Every 
big sin starts off as small. That's what the Bible says, that we should take every single thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Why? Because that's where sin always starts. Where did it start with David in his thought life? Verse 1, I deserve a little peace and quiet. I deserve to indulge myself and stay home just this one time. What's it going to hurt? Well, the reality is simply this, is it not only hurts us in our walk with the Lord, it hurts everyone in our sphere of influence. Because the second truth I want you to see is this, is that our sins are not victimless. You know the conversation we often have with ourselves when we begin to dabble into sin, not realizing it's progressive in nature, not realizing that we can't manage it, sin always manages us. You know the conversation we often use to self-justify walking down that road of sinfulness? It's not hurting anyone. Right? It's just a little, little small indiscretion. No, no one is hurt by this. I know it's wrong, but I know that God forgives, and no one's going to be hurt in the process. Let me just share something that's probably not a secret to you. I've had several conversations last 20 years with people whose lives have been destroyed by sin and the lives of those around him have been caught up in that tornado. And you know what every single one of them has told me? Had I known in a million years how this would have played out, had I could have ever fathomed all the people that would be hurt by my selfish, what I thought was my isolated sin, I would have never in the world went down this road. But hear me this morning. Sin is never in a vacuum. Sin is never victimless. The story of David's sin doesn't end with this act, a single act of adultery with Bathsheba. It grows because why? Sin is always progressive in nature. Look at the end of verse 4. Down into verse 6. The end of verse 4, it says, she returned to her house, and so they committed the act of adultery, and she goes back home, and listen to verse 5, and the woman conceived, she's pregnant, and so she sent and told David and said, I am with child, and then David sent to Joab saying, send Uriah the Hittite, and Joab sent Uriah to David. Now, if you've ever been wondering, where in the world is this woman's husband? She's up there. Naked on the roof, right? And then she engages in this, you know, act of adultery with a very public... Where in the world is her husband? Here's the irony of all of that. Uriah, her husband, is out leading the battle, the same battle that David neglected to participate in, in verse 1. And so not only do we see that sin is progressive in the life of David here at the beginning of chapter 11, what we also see is the damage it causes is progressive as well. And so David did what every person in this room has done at some point in your life. David, instead of confessing and repenting of his sin, David tries to manage the consequences. You ever have a time in a conversation where you're arguing with someone, and it may not be heated, but you're just arguing, disagreeing, 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 and all of a sudden <laughs> the light comes on, and there's that realization like, oh no, I'm wrong. You know what you do? If you're a man, you just keep going, amen? Like you just press the gas pedal down harder. Because to admit that you're wrong and backtrack, well, it's just there's too much pride on the line. Every one of us had a time when you were a child. Where you got caught in the line, what you should have said is, you're right, I'm sorry. You just said, you know what, I'm going to manage this situation. 
I'm going to cover my tracks. I'm going to come up with a scheme that is so elaborate that no one will ever find out that I'm actually guilty. Now, we, we've all done that as kids, and there's a time as a parent where you ever, as a parent, when you know you've caught your kid in a lie, and there's this sick delight inside of you, like, I've got you. Am I right? And if you're like, I've never experienced that, I'm just assuming you don't have children then, okay? And so there's this like, and so we've done that as children, but here's the sad thing. People still do that as adults. That's what David did. Should have confessed it, should have repented of it, but David did what we often do when caught in our sin. He says, I'm going to manage it. I'm going to grab a hold of it and manage it so that I can minimize the consequences. I'm going to fix this thing. And so that's exactly what he tries to do. Look at verse 7. When Uriah, this is Bathsheba's husband, had come to him, David asked how Joab's doing. David's like, hey, how's the war going? <laughs> how, the, how are the people doing? And how's the war prospered? And David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. And so Uriah, Uriah departed from the king's house, and a gift of uh, food from the king followed him. So, so here's what David's hoping. Hey, this guy's been a, away from his wife for a long time because of the war, and he's, they've been apart from each other physically, not just geographically. They've been apart physically, and so the goal is he's been gone for a long time, so if he goes home and has a nice meal and cleans himself up and spends the night with his wife, then they'll be intimate, and no one will know that the baby she's pregnant with is mine. They'll assume it's Uriah's who came home from the war for a little bit. But it doesn't go as David because here's why you can't manage sin it manages you so keep reading in verse 9 but Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his Lord and did not go down to his house he's that loyal to David and so when they told David saying Uriah did not go down to his house David said to Uriah did you not come from a journey why didn't you go down to your house and Uriah said to David the ark in Israel and Judah are dwelling in tents and my Lord Joab and the servants of the Lord are encamped in the open fields. Shall I then go to my house and eat and drink and to lie with my wife? And as you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. And so Uriah is so noble that he says, are you kidding me? This army that I'm leading, which, side note, according to verse 1, David should have been leading, right? They're out there sleeping in open fields. And how in the world is I, as their leader, how in the world am I going to come home and eat and drink and, and be intimate with my wife? No, no, no. I can't do that. And so as long as they're sacrificing, I'm going to sacrifice as well. That's how noble of a man he was. Now, would you not think at this point David goes, gosh, you are so noble. I am so wicked. Let me tell you what happened while you're gone. But he doesn't. Why? Because instead of thinking that sin's going to manage him, he's still thinking, I can manage sin. I can minimize the consequences. And so David just thinks, you know what, I'm just going to have to press this thing a little further, go down to verse 12. And so David said to Uriah, wait here today and also tomorrow and I'll let you depart. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And when David called him, he ate and drank before him and made him drunk. And at evening, he went out to lie on his bed with the servants of the Lord, but he did not go down to his house. David tries again. David says, good night. 
Let's just get this guy drunk and lower his inhibitions. And so eventually, his, with his inhibitions, his flesh will take over. And, and he hasn't seen his wife. And so finally, he'll go home. But even in a drunken state, Uriah is so noble, so loyal. He doesn't do it. And so at that point in time, you think David would give in? No. David just keeps trying to manage the consequences. Look at verses 14 down through verse 17. In the morning, it happened that David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. So, so here's David's plan has not worked. Hey, I'll bring her husband home. He'll get her pregnant. No one will know. Hey, uh, he doesn't go. He's, he's too loyal. Doesn't happen. I'll get the guy drunk. Then it will happen. It still doesn't happen. And so David's still trying to manage the consequences. In verse 15, listen to what he does. And he wrote in the letter saying, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hottest battle and retreat from him that he may be struck down and die. David felt like he had no choice. And the sin that he thought he could manage begins to manage him, and so his sin begins progressive. Why? Because sin is always progressive in nature. Instead of, so instead of confessing it, he tries to control it and minimize it. And so what happens is this. He finally sends her as what started off as an indulgence of self Pleasure in verse 1, grew to a lustful gaze in verse 2, grew to a longing in verse 3, grew to murder here at the end of chapter 11. And someone much wiser than me has said this, sin will take you further than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. That's exactly what happens in David's life, and that's what will happen in your life as well. So how does a person whose life, the lower story of their life, seems so aligned with the upper story of what God is doing? How is a guy who is described as the apple of God's eye? How is a guy who is described as a man after God's own heart? How in the world does his lower story life get so out of whack with the upper story of what God is doing after following him for so long? Here's the answer. Slowly and progressively. Always. And then it starts with a deceiving thought that I'll just indulge what my heart wants. But I'll do it in such, I'll manage it in such a way that I can get the thrill that sin offers. What's the joke we say all the time? If sin's not fun, you're doing it wrong, right? And so I'll just get the buzz off, I'll get the little thrill off, but I'll keep it right there and no one will know and no one will get hurt. And in this, when you try to manage sin, guess what? Everybody around you gets destroyed. And everything around you gets destroyed as well. Maybe you're here and you're in the midst of a life like that. And no one knows. And you're thinking no one's ever going to know. And, and the reality is I can manage this thing and no one has to know. Let me just share with you this morning. Listen, the one who gave his life as a ransom for your sin, he always knows. And at the end of the day, you may not be breaking anyone else's heart. You're breaking his That's exactly what happened in David's life. Go down to the very last verse, verse 27. Uriah's been killed. It seems like David got away with it, right? But verse 27 says, the Lord knows. And what does it say? Verse 27, and when her mourning was over, Bathsheba's mourning over the fact that her husband Uriah had been killed, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. Right? Like he got away with it, right? What's the end of it say? But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. At the end of the day, the only person who it really matters that would know, knew. 
The one who gave his life as a ransom for sin is always hurt by your sin. No matter how well you conceal it, no matter how well you manage it, no matter how much control you think over the collateral damage that will cause it, at the end of the day, the Lord knows, and he looks, and he's displeased, and it breaks his heart. And so let me just tell you as you're wrestling with holiness and wondering like, I don't want my life to end up like David's. I don't want to be walking with the Lord and all of a sudden get off track and it happens so slow that we often don't even realize what's happening in our own lives and we justify it and try to control it. I don't want that to happen in my life. Then here's the reality. Don't ask, is this wrong? Don't ask, how far can I go and it not be sin? Ask the question, Will this please the Lord? That's the right question. If you're here and you want to be wise, would you just raise your hand? If your hand's not raised, I don't even know what to think about you, by the way. And I can see you at home in your living room too, alright? You know what the book of Proverbs says is the beginning of wisdom? The book of Proverbs says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Now, the fear of the Lord is not trembling in the corner like, oh, God's going to pour His wrath on me. Listen, if you've received Jesus Christ, Romans chapter 8, verse 1 says, Now, therefore, for those who are in Christ Jesus, there is no condemnation. Christ has absorbed all the wrath of God on our behalves. So that's not what he's describing here. What he's describing here in the fear of the Lord is this idea that I'm afraid that I may do something to displease the Lord. That's the heart mindset of a person who wants to keep the lower story of their life in line with the upper story of what God is doing. They're not asking, how far can I go and it, and it still not be sin? How well can I manage it? How do I conceal it? They're asking on the front end, will this please the Lord or not? And so sin is always progressive. And so the reality is we have to have a heart on the front end that says, is this going to be pleasing to the Lord. David never asked that. David said, how can I get what I want? How can I justify my indulgence to stay home this one time? How can I fix this instead of confess this? How do I cover this up instead of repenting of it? He never asked that question. And what happens is interesting. We have time to go there in verse 12. What we see is this, is that it seems like at the end of verse 11, David got away with it. But guess what? If you kept reading the verse 12, what you'd find out is David has a little encounter with a guy uh, who's a prophet named Nathan. And prophets knew things that other people didn't know, and they spoke truth that other people didn't want to hear. And so Nathan starts spinning this tale about this wicked person to David. And, and can you imagine such a person, David, who would do these types of things? And David's like, oh, that's disgusting. And at this incredible point in chapter 12, Nathan says, David, thou art the man. That's you. And at this point in time, David does something that Saul did not do. David repents. He repents. And so I want you to hear me this morning. No matter how far and how deep in the sin you've drifted, here's the good news of grace this morning. You're only one repentant prayer away from receiving the grace of God in your life. That's it. One repentant prayer away. It doesn't matter how long, how far, how long it's gone on, how long you've concealed it, how hard you've tried to manage it for years or decades, no matter how deep or how long the deception's gone on, the good news of grace is this. You're only one repentant prayer away from receiving God's grace 
So here's the last truth I want you to see quickly. Our sins can always be forgiven. Always. David repents, and on the other side of repentance is God's amazing grace. Now, sometimes people say, I'm repentant, and we're not sure if they're really sincere or not. But how do we know if David was sincere? Well, his words are recorded in Psalm 51, which says this, Have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, cleanse me from my sin, purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have broken through his discipline rejoice. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. No more justifying. No more self-indulgence. No more managing consequences. Lord, I am guilty, and I throw myself on the mercy of your grace. If we kept reading and got in the New Testament, the book of Hebrews, David is listed in Hebrews chapter 11 in the hall of faith. And here's the good news about grace. There is no asterisk next to his name. You see, that's how powerful grace is. It has the ability to wash away the, stin, the stains of sin in your life. That's how powerful it is. And if God can redeem a man like David, guilty of lust and adultery and murder and deception, then here's the good news about grace. God can redeem your life as well. God can redeem your life as well. And it may start off with a small sinful desire. And if that's where you are this morning, you're entertaining some sinful thoughts in your life. You're self-justifying. Listen, hear me this morning. Sin always starts off small. Take that captive obedience to Christ. Take that thought captive. But if you've already gone beyond that and you feel like it's too late, here's the good news. It's never too late with the grace of God. And whatever you've been, wherever you've done, you can start fresh with Christ today. So I'd like you to bow your heads this morning, if you would. And I want to share two things this morning as you begin to meditate on what the Lord has spoken to us through His Word. If you're here this morning, you're watching online, and you're on the front end of sin, you're meditating on it, you're thinking about it, you're scheming how to get away with it. You're justifying it. I want you right now, through the power of the Holy Spirit, I want you to take that thought captive to the obedience of Christ. I want you to say, Lord, whatever it is, relationship, lack of integrity, whatever it is, it will never satisfy my heart as much as holiness will. And so would you just take that thought captive to the obedience of Christ, through the power of the Holy Spirit, and would you just denounce that? Would you declare to the Lord this morning, nothing will satisfy my heart more than holiness will. If you're here this morning or you're watching online, and you've allowed that thought to de develop into sinful decisions in your life, and maybe no one knows, but the Lord knows. And maybe others do know. Maybe they've been hurt as well. And you're wondering, is there enough grace for me? Listen, 
on the other side of your repentance is God's amazing and unending grace. And if you'll confess that sin this morning, if you'll repent of that, in other words, have a change of heart that leads to a change of action, here's the good news. There's grace available for you today. That whatever it is, no matter how long it's gone on, there's grace available for you today. Would you confess that and repent of that and receive the Lord's grace today? Father, we're grateful for the promises and the encouraging words of Scripture. They sustain us in difficult days. But God, we're also grateful for the warnings. Every parent who loves his children at some time gives a warning for their benefit, motivated by love. And so God, we're grateful for 2 Samuel chapter 11 and the warnings that are given to us. That God, you just don't leave us to ourselves. You know how that always turns out in our ruin and the ruin of everything around us. And so God, we're grateful for the lessons we can learn from the life of David. And God, above all those things, we're grateful for the grace made available by Jesus Christ. And so God, for every person today watching in the room who genuinely confessed sin, who repented of sin, God, help them to walk out of here today in the freedom of your grace. God, we don't have to confess our sins over and over. If we confess them, you are faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. So God, help us to walk forward this week in the confidence of that truth. We pray this in the powerful name of Jesus Christ because we can. Amen.